we would sit in a circle and draw and draw away and draw away. And he would walk around in a circle behind us so we couldn't see him. And I could, like, at some point, I, he stopped behind me. And I could hear this. <sighs> this is the SparkCast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Growing up on a dairy farm in Denmark, Brian Leif Hansen assumed he'd spend his life living near where he grew up, perhaps a farmer himself, but the universe had other ideas for him. While a love for puppets and animation was always with him, that didn't seem like a viable option for a career, so he did the next best thing and trained to be a chef. While he didn't realize it then, that early training prepared him for the life of an animator building stamina, and cultivating an eye for precision and detail. Leaving behind a successful career in the kitchen, at 24, Brian took a leap and enrolled in a program at the world-renowned animation workshop. And the rest, as they say, is history. In our conversation, Brian shares memories of growing up on a farm and takes us through his whirlwind, if short-lived, career in the culinary arts. He then shares his path to animation, as well as insights into how he applied lessons learned throughout his career to tackle his biggest challenge, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Here's our conversation with Brian Leif Hansen. When you were growing up, did you ever want to be a farmer since you grew up? I think, yes, I, I could have been a farmer, but I sort of, I think I quite like early maybe you know even when I was 10 or 12 realized that you know to be a farmer you kind of need to do it for like 40 years of something like that and I I kind of felt that I didn't really have time for that so so I I and also I wanted to be a million things I wanted to be a marine biologist I wanted to be uh have to do with like you know a commodity like digging in the ground and stuff and there was a lot of things that I wanted to be. I wanted to be like a zoo, like working in a zoo as well. Um, and there, there was tons of things I wanted to do. But the film was really exciting, I think. And I think that, like, you know, when I watched Dark Crystal, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's the puppets and stuff. I want to do that. But, you know, it was, yeah. it was, like, difficult. Even though I did build, like, puppets when oh, I was... Wow. Not when I was... A, kid yeah well a little bit when I was a kid as well but also when I was like you know 14 15 17 or whatever like I still was building stuff and 22 or whatever but I didn't it's a funny kind of I'm a bit like I think George and I has a lot of things in common Georgina Haynes in the way that we don't really know anything about films and stuff we're not the film geeks nerds we never wished to become anything in film we just love the environment her for her it's like the uh, production of um, like costumes and puppets and stuff and like manufacturing the, the the little things and for me it's the sort of acting and performance and sort of the sort of the fantasy of it all and not particularly 
who I'm working for or who I'm standing next to or whatever. It doesn't really matter to me. When I, you know, when I got the job in Fantastic Mr. Fox, I did not, I did not know who Wes Anderson was really. I've barely seen any. I don't think I've seen any of his films. Um, the same with with Tim Burton. I, you know, I probably watched ever Scissorhand, you know, but I didn't really know that it was Tim Burton's film. So it doesn't, that doesn't matter to me. That's not what's exciting about it for me. I'm just like exciting to elevate the craft and to be better and performing and stuff. But I mean, you were building stuff and already kind of into the whole puppet thing early on, but that's not what you went to school for originally. So that was an idea. But um, I sort of very realistically sort of thought to myself, well, that's difficult. And, you know, then I knew nobody who was working in film or the arts for that matters. I sort of chose the next best thing, which was like working in the kitchen. So I became, I went to school for becoming a chef and then I worked as a chef for, for some time and in very good restaurants as well. Because uh, I do think I have this like attention to detail and and perfection and stuff, so it was sort of natural for me to go into somewhere where that happens. And how was that? Because you did that for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. I stuck around because I always so the film idea was still there. So I I think I just went there because that was the attainable in my world attainable thing and and I think I stuck around longer than I expected to also I didn't actually know what I wanted to do there was no name to it so it is like oh well I can do this and then I went and did that and I I stuck around for longer than I expected I think because it was quite exciting I was lucky you know because I think when you enter sort of any industry you don't really know what that is that I don't think you know what it is to be a carpenter before you actually do it. I don't think you know what it is to be a bricklayer or anything. I don't think you know how what it is to be a lawyer before you actually do it, mm-hmm. um, or a doctor or anything. You know, you sort of you sort of have an idea and then you start doing it and then you realize, oh, this is what it is. So I became very fascinated by the kitchen, and yeah, I landed. I lucky landed because I applied in big hotels which wouldn't have been that great, you know, like, and then I applied in other places and I landed up and my first sort of summer job was out on the Danish West Coast in a very fancy uh, sort of high-level kitchen. And that was just like a stumble. I kind of, it was to do my teacher in the school did send me there. So, but again, I didn't really know. So I just stumbled into that kitchen and got that experience and I was like, oh, all right, so this is what that is. And then later on, I get my, got my apprenticeship in a, in a very fine place that in 1996 were um, sort of um, got the Restaurant of the Year Award in Denmark. Wow. And that was, the, that was the year I graduated as well. And never, it was a very small place, so it was really like, it, it was a lot of my work in there as well. And then I stuck around in that place for another three years and the level just kept on going up and which which was also exciting about it like in the beginning we were just frying chicken breast and a bit of kale and stuff in the end we were making everything ourselves you know like jams for breakfast we was a small hotel attached to it again eight rooms and the restaurant sat like 34 people so it was a tiny place with a little bit of a venue room that was you know, could sit like 20 or something. 
so we yeah, baked everything ourselves. We like made all the jams, and this is like you know 30 years ago. So yeah, it was pretty fancy at that time. Yeah, that was that was before the whole craze. Yeah. With yeah, that was before the whole thing went completely crazy, and everybody started arranging their salads with tweezers and stuff. <laughs> but still, with the same kind of uh, you know from the from the from the land from the ground, and we we went out in forest. You know, not everything, but you know some of it. That's amazing. So I mean, you know, you're having this great career in the kitchen. You're learning new things. You're excited about what you're doing. What prompts you to think okay i'm ready for something new um it was kind of again it's kind of a little bit random so throughout the my time i've had this like little yellow sticky note on my billboard to wherever i went and it was in the place i you know called home when i was working in the in the restaurant and the restaurant was as i say like it was just an onwards upwards sort of in quality and regards from whoever was in in the know and then suddenly, like two of the guys I was working with quit, which is not—it's very normal. Like nobody in the in the chefing business, nobody stays the same place for more than a year or two, and then they're out to new things. And I was thinking, probably a little bit odd in that way because I stuck with it. I've only really worked in one place. I went to France a little bit and worked over a summer, and then yeah, and then came back to the same place and just worked there. So a little bit ordinary. But yeah, they they quit, and I was like, what? We, we had this thing going, you know, what are you doing? Well, I thought this was important. And then I went like, maybe I should also quit now and I should go in another place as well to elevate my skills. I should go to like, you know, I should go to London, work at, at some, in some fancier place. I should go to France and work like in three-star three Michelin restaurant or something so I needed I was aware I needed to move as well and so I needed to move so I was like well maybe I should move in to this film business idea that I have that I don't even know what is so I um so I took the little sticky note down from the billboard which had been sitting there for like you know seven years or maybe more like 10 years because I contacted so the number that was on this little sticky note was the number for the animation workshop in Vibor which is you know I think people recognize it now like 25 years ago it's less known but now it seems to be one of the best places to learn how to animate in Europe and I called them because I wanted to borrow some equipment when I was like like 20 or something like that, like maybe 18. I had driver's license, it must be a 20. To get to, I was, I've been working like throughout my youth and, and I've been working a lot with scouts as well for, um, for activities for them. I thought, well, we could make a cutout um, animation. And also because I had interest in this and fun and stuff. So I called them once to borrow some equipment, but they didn't want to borrow any equipment to me. So that was a very short conversation. And funny enough, I, in the background, I don't know who I spoke to, which is quite funny because it's still a very small place at this time. So I most, must have spoke to the people there, like I must have spoken to Morton Tourning or, or something like that. And in the background, I could hear somebody say, how old is this guy? <laughs> like, is it safe to lend him <laughs> is anything? It safe to lend him anything? <laughs> And then, but they didn't want to lend me anything, so that so that sort of went away. And then, but I still had the phone number. And now, like you know, seven years later, I took it down and then I called them and asked them what to do. And they were like, "Oh, well, we're doing these like two D courses, sort of 
introduction to the courses to our big three-year sort of university education for they call it something I can't remember so I was like okay great let's do that and I sent some drawings in and that's I'm I'm not a particularly great drawer at all I can't really draw but this was the this was the first step so I was like well let's do that let's start somewhere and then we can figure out what uh, we can do what we can use that for and then uh, I get there and I think the animation workshop have done some kind of um, sort of deal with the technical college in Vibor. Uh, so they were, they, were, they were filling two classrooms with, you know, mixed media, multimedia students, you know, they now have to learn to draw. And it was a little bit out of what they normally do at the animation workshop because they, they pick particularly talented people. They have like a test you have to take and then you have to like be very talented because the, the 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 place was just teeming with extremely talented people but this was a little bit different and i looked in these classrooms because i had this professional career already i was like yeah yeah i don't know there, there might be three people in here out of the two classes of like 50 students in all that might have a chance of doing anything in here because these this is not good. And my own, I also realized my own skills were not really um, good enough. I had this, like, uh, we had this, like, Russian Artyom, Russian, um, like, uh, uh, life drawing teacher. And he would, we would sit in a circle and draw and draw away and draw away. And he would walk around in a circle behind us so we couldn't see him. And I could, like, at some point, I, he stopped behind me. And I could hear this big thigh and he was Russian and he had a particular manner about him so he just leaned over my shoulder with the crayon his big fat crayon and just like sort of just like slammed like and he couldn't understand why I couldn't see it you know it was big frustration to him and and um, so but I, I was like well I'm, I'm you know brought up in the country so I'm gonna finish this you know and see, there's and, a determination yeah determination there. of finishing this and then um regardless of my uh, skill and then but then randomly again a stop-motion course popped up at the animation workshop because um Egmont which is a publishing company they bought all the cinemas they were now a big sort of media um company uh, I think they bought Nordisk Film as well uh, so there was a, this big company that wanted to do a mixed adventure stop-motion puppetry uh, feature film. And they started up the studio that was called Egmont Imagination. Um, and they realized they didn't really have the talent already, so they wanted to do something first. So they were like, oh, we're going to do a stop-motion TV series. And they went around and shopped and uh, probably underbid everybody else to get this Fisher Price TV show. So the little Fisher Price character from we know from the little yellow bus and the and the farm when you open the door it goes. So they commissioned seventy eight episodes, like times five minutes or something. It was a pretty big job. And they realized they didn't have stop-motion animators enough in, in the country to do that. So they asked the animation workshop, well, can you make us some? 
<laughs> Let's just pop out some uh, some animators, why don't we? Well, it kind of it was kind of a good idea. I don't know, like so you contact the school that's doing animation, and then you get them to do some animators for you. That's great. So they teamed up with that, and then um, also the um, Danish National Film School do animation as well, but they only do animation directors. Mm. So the course was consistent of like four months of intensive animation, stop motion animation training. There was very little sort of history or anything. It was, it was all like hands on. It was all on. animation yeah. and acting and, and performing and posing and, and stuff like that. And that was the followed of four months making a film or, or working on a film that was made by the uh, animation directors that came out from the National Film School. So it was a very smart little program um, very intensive. Yeah, yeah, very intensive. And I, uh, the animation workshop is just a fantastic place. Sort of everybody lived there. So it was animation, twenty four seven. They were they are very good at getting grants and and support. Like they're extremely good at, at like supporting the pupils and students there in in in, in getting financial base for them actually being there. Uh, so they helped a lot with that. And they've got in some really amazing teachers as well. Uh, Barry Perfs was there. Dave Baldwick was there. One of the Baldwick Brothers guys. Quite a few stop-motion animators from America who just come, came off like uh, James and Giant Peach and, and before that, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. So, so seasoned stop-motion animator who, who's been working on quite high-level things. And they came for a week, each of them. And then we had a week by ourselves there was a there was a sort of a danish stop motion guy there as well and sort of there was a it's sort of a cycle of, of professional coming in and teaching us for a week and then we were left alone for a week or two and then new new superstar came in and and taught us something else because they all had different styles and different ways of approaching the animation so it was really good and it really there was a crash course in in like stop motion that you could not wish for any better you know it was fantastic um, and it and it brought me to a level where I then got the job at um, uh, Egmont and Imagination. But most of the other crew there was from England, from London, because are from England in general, because there's a, there's a bigger tradition for um, stop motion animation there. So the rest of the crew was really there was a, there was a lot of builders that was from Denmark, but the animation crew was really mostly from England. I think it's worth mentioning because you you said that you know even from the, the those fifty people that you saw in those two classrooms, mm. from your experience you you already knew that not everybody was up to par. Yeah. But I think it's worth mentioning you were very young at the time too. I mean you were only in, in your early twenties. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, That's really impressive. Yeah. The fact that you could read the room like that. Yeah. I think, that, and and I think the the four or five that I spotted there are still working in the business because wow. I knew I knew that they, they, I I kept on bumping into people that like the few that was like oh yeah no they are, they have it yeah. So you get your first job. What, what were you actually doing on, when you transitioned from that eight month program into? I was I was animating. Yeah, I went over there, took a test and stuff, and straight into animation with these like, you know, seasoned again, really seasoned sort of uh, industry people that was alongside me. And of course, I was the youngling, and you know, but 
uh, I think I took to it quite quickly and, and, you know, had some kind of hidden talent for it that was, like, you know, mysterious. I tell you, like, the, the test I took for, to get into the animation workshop for the, for the, um, for the stop-motion course, somebody, somebody who already knew a bit about it came to my test unit because I was like, what, what is this? Because they had the little puppet, uh, little armature, and um, it had, like, holes in its feet, and it was on a pin board, and you were meant to sort of stick pins to its feet to make it stand. And he told me that. I didn't have no clue about that. You know, it was just like, you know, it had no sort of, you know, I didn't, I knew very little about how it really worked. Uh, but somehow I had some mysterious talent for this thing. And it was not really what I wanted to do anyway, because, you know, I wanted to work with the bigger puppets and stuff. And I still think I might get a chance for that. You know, I don't know, I wanted to be, you know, Muppets. I wanted to puppeteer and, and do stuff like that. But, you know, this was, again, you know, a step closer to that. Neil Gaiman once had a, a whole of speech for some class graduating, and he was like, he also, like, I think he, he sort of tells in the same way, he didn't have a particular plan, but he knew he wanted to write. And if it, if whatever, it depended on what kind of time he was in, what kind of job he would take. And if it seems like it would bring him closer to, you know, writing, then he would take that job. But if it was later on, if that same job would be sent to him, he might not have been because it would have brought him further away from. But this seems, this stop motion thing seemed to have brought my closer to that idea I had. So that's why I, I went that way. You've also done a little bit of CG work. I know early yeah. on you were yeah. doing a little bit of CG between your stop motion jobs. Yeah. I can, I, again, I think I've been lucky to land into this period of stop motion renaissance. But in the very beginning of my career, there was less renaissance and more like those big gaps between things. So I filled the gap with doing CG work. And I started like right after that Fisher Price job. Some of the production people went on to producing another thing, and they needed animators. And I didn't know anything about computers because, you know, I, <clears throat> I grew up in a time where you didn't really have an email either. So when I went into the chefing business, computers became not, not very important in my life. So I, uh, when I took that job animating, I never was learning Softy Marsh. I worked for free for the two first months, and then I got paid for the next two months. And again, I had this like weird talent for moving things around. So I, I really very quickly uh, just figured out how to move things around inside the computer. It was, it was quite fun. And then I, then I had that skill as well, which I, I kept on coming back to in between the other things I was doing. Uh, and I worked in, you know, Tweety Max. The next thing was Tweety Max, and then it was like yeah, Maya. The next thing was Maya. So I sort of had my dip, dip in, in and all that. I can't do it anymore because as soon as you leave the, I feel that every time you leave the the, the keyboard, you sort of forget everything about it. So. And it moves so fast, right? And you have yeah, to actively yeah, be yeah, learning yeah, it yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. In your previous career, you know, you mentioned you were kind of in the same place for long periods of time. But when you move into animation, you start moving around a lot more. Yeah. How was that for you, like on a personal level, having to like constantly be on the move from job to job? I, I liked it. I, uh, I'm always a little bit sad when I move. I become sort of slightly depressive because <laughs> this sort of feels... 
you know, when you rip everything up and move it to a new place, the first couple of weeks are always difficult. But I do like the fact that I lived in a lot of places for a longer time. So it's not like being a tourist there. It's like you live there and work there and therefore you sort of become more part of it. And I, I do like that about it. If I could do everything I've done in Houndstorp where I grew up, I would just stay there. But so it's not because I wanted to move anywhere. I didn't have the I didn't have the urge to move away from home or I didn't have the urge to grow up and you know, I was always like slightly worried about growing up. I'd rather just stay little. Uh, and I didn't have an urge to move away from any anything, but you know the jobs just required that, so that's why I did it. And I always thought it was very exciting to move to new places. We're in a place where a lot of people often move from yeah. place to place for contracts and whatever else. Yeah. Do you have any practical tips on, you know, when you get to a new place, how do you sort of start to find your way and to find your people? And like um, my thing is take all your things with you. Like pack pack a pallet and get it shipped, you know. Pay the pay the money it costs to do that, because then I think you land quicker. You know, you don't have this period where you're being in your kitchen where you're like, oh, damn, I have I have no pots, but I know I have these pots in storage, so I don't really want to buy a new pot. Um, so I'm just gonna buy a cheap pot. Ugh. <laughs> That's just horrible. It just so adds to the... That adds to the depression of the whole thing. So I've been like, I've been, every time I moved to some new place, I packed the pallet with all the stuff, even like, you know, spices from the spice drawer. Because I knew it, when you turn up the new place, you go like, oh, oh sad story. Oh, I have no baking powder. Oh, I have no, like, you know, it, it, becomes, a, it becomes worse then. But then you just open that box and you have everything again. I've shipped sugar and... It's and like being home shakers. though, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When, when did you land in Portland? After the Fisher-Price job, there was a lot of English people and um, they went back to work on, on a little show called Koala Brothers, which again had a very high quality of animation. And all those people working on the Koala Brothers then eventually went on to uh, working on Corpse Bride. Uh, and I just like followed along. And then two other films were made in, in, in the same place by the same producer, um, Fantastic Mr. Fox and um, Frank and Rini. And then, then she went home, she's American. Alison Obadi went home to America. And so that sort of dried up a little bit. And also Laika have started making these fantastic films. So like all eyes were towards Portland, Oregon and it seemed like a natural sort of progression to go there because they were doing bigger and better. And I came to Portland uh, first time in January 2012 uh, at the very end of Paranorman. And I think the Leica peeps were sort of looking to, you know, their plans for more films, so they're looking to expand their, you know, um, group of animators. So they sort of brought like six of us in at the same time in that very end of Paranorman just to think test us out and if we got the chops to uh, walk along. And then went back to London, did some ads and stuff, and then for Box Trolls, I came back over again. Uh, and then the, the breaks in between the films became even shorter and shorter and shorter because, you know, become more more integrated part of the Leica machine. So I think there was no 
I didn't have any breaks between um, uh, Kubo and Missing Link because you know I sort of became staff and and. Uh, and yeah. is that when you you sort of started calling Portland home? Yeah, well, it stuck around for again. You know, it's again. It's like you know, if there's exciting things to do, then I would stick around. So you know, and and Portland came kept on giving exciting things. I think in 2018, when Mark Gustafson calls me for the Pinocchio job, I'm sort of ready to pack up and find something else. Because, you know, like is great and stuff, but I, I felt I was going a little bit in, in you know, it was a little bit of, uh, yeah, it was a bit of idling. There was a bit of idling going on, which I didn't appreciate very much. Um, uh, so I was sort of ready to find something else. Um, I'm married to Melanie Coombs, which is a producer of uh, Harvey Crumbit and, and Marion Max and, and also other live action stuff, uh, both documentaries and series and television stuff. And I felt maybe it was time to sort of go somewhere where she could do things instead of just tagging along with me but then she got she got this job at shadow machine doing a, a tv series and because uh, shadow machine came up from la uh, probably thinking that they were going to do pinocchio and uh, where do you go if you need stop motion animators you go to portland oregon because that just seemed to be all there so they came up uh, to in preparation for that and again you know you don't just start you need something to start on so they did a, a, a television series that were called silver in truth first and melanie produced that and then uh she was also she was co-producer on pinocchio and again i thought whoa now now Portland gives again. So this is exciting. Yeah. Melanie has something to do with the exciting for her. So I can just stay out and like her, do my animation, which I still liked a lot. Um, and then that would be, you know, another th three years and great. But then Mark Gustafson called me and said, oh, do you want to be animation supervisor on Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio? And I was like, yeah, that sounds exciting. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about Mark because you had met Mark before, right? Yeah, yeah Mark was... I guess animation director on, I'm, I'm sure I'm getting his title wrong, but either co-director or animation director on Fantastic Mr. Fox. So he was there sort of day-to-day -day, uh, directing that in London. So he knew me from there yeah, and knew I was in town. Let's talk a little bit about Pinocchio because that was, even though it's like, you know, something exciting, it's also something a bit new for you because now you're animation yeah. supervisor. Yeah. And you've worked like, basically like all the aspects of, you know, stop motion animation. And for folks that don't know, can you walk us through a little bit of, you know, what the difference is between each of your roles over the, the course of your career? So it sort of goes up and down, it just sort of depends what kind of project you are working on. So like the Fisher Prize thing, I was animator. I wasn't, I don't think there was any assistant animators on that show. So it also depends on the size of the show and what kind of jobs there were. But here on, the, on a television series, it's just about it's about producing frames, so you, so you don't really have space for any younglings. There's fast-paced, yeah, fast-paced uh, thing, and frames, 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 please. And on Corpse Ride, I was an assistant, which means that I'm. I was doing mostly background stuff and like flying crows. I flow flow a lot of crows around, and sort of testing things out if they're going to work. So I'm a test unit, testing like you know, I, it could be smoke or it could be 
you know, mechanics of something, doing blocks of things, you know, big, big sort of arrangement where you want to see the carriage going over the hill, but you don't, there's no animator attached to that particular scene yet. So you send the assistant in there to drag it to, so camera have something to work with, so they know where, where the carriage is, where the light needs to be. Um, and then later on, I did get to animate quite a lot because then, you know, they, oh, this guy, he can animate. Uh, let's put him on stuff. So I animated most of the singing uh, with the spider and maggot, the little green spider maggot. So I really animated nearly all of that and did some picture shots as well and, and got to um, do some bigger stuff as well. But then on the next films, I was an animator and, and, you know, like, you know, become more experienced be, you, on Fox. I was like key animators because that was the term they used at that time. And then coming to Leica, dropping down in the hierarchy a bit again because you knew and stuff. So again, it just becomes animators because there was very few leads in that place because they don't really like that so much. Uh, and also it's a kind of a bogus title. Anyway, because you you are animating your own stuff, you can you naturally you would help anybody who comes and asks for advice, and then you know I don't think that matters what kind of title you have. Uh, did a lot of like developing, so 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 then I was just animating, and then on Missing Link actually I did a lot of uh, developing the um, elephant. So I was with the elephant from the very first sort of like you know broken up uh, uh, armature that was built by rigging um, and and sort of developing that and worked a lot again with like George again because uh, he was in the puppet department at that time uh, figuring out how to build this and animate this elephant. So that was sort of a, a step up into my sort of that kind of role where you're sort of overseeing like a product from like the very first screw to the f very finished last bit of animation. Uh, which was, uh, you know, great for the supervising role because as a supervisor, you come on as the first person. There was, n there was not, and there's nothing. There's just George and me sitting in a corner in a big sort of warehouse space. It's a bit cold because nobody starting paying for heat yet. <laughs> so, and then you start from the ground, and uh, and is and, and I think like the first year on Pinocchio is probably where I did my best work, I keep on saying that, because I think we really did develop a, a great Pinocchio puppet, me, like George and me together, with Richard uh, Pickerskill, who's in Manchester building the puppet, and also sort of finding out what, I had a sort of a clear idea, because I had this all this experience from all these different kinds of studios and places I've worked in, I had a very clear idea about how, how it should be you know, like how the animation crew should interact and what. So I brought in, like, um, it's very rare that you have a space for the animators to to work because the, 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 they have the computer, which is the animation tower, but as soon as you're done with your animation, you kind of lose that platform because camera and, and, and set dresser and stuff is using the same screen and same camera, so you lose your space. So I very... Sh um, make sure that the animator had a space to work while they were not, you know, animating. And so made a little office. Yeah. And it's not a green room, it's, an, it's a place where you come and do work. Um, and also the interaction with the animators, sort of making sure that they got information straight away. Because it's kind of, it's like a, the animators are like actors. They do a performance 
And because they did that performance, they become incredibly insecure about their ar artistic work. You know, and they always, as an, they always think, uh, as an animator, you always think it's shit. You know, you think, oh, I could have done that better, couldn't I? You know, so you have that sort of internal monologue in you. So getting the information about what happens to your shot to the animator really quick, I thought that was a very important thing. So you don't walk around in the hallways thinking that the directors might not like your shot or whatever too, for too long, you know, if there is a problem. Um, and sort of the, the sort of handling of, of the stress levels as well. I, I, I felt that there was like something you could do to sort of lower the stress levels and making sure that people were not freaking out alone in their units. And also like the, on the technical side, how the animation should look. I was also, uh, because I spent this time at Leica, which do amazing things, but I do think that sometimes they're spending a little bit much on the, on the time on the technical side of things that's not really i don't think any audience really notice and that's not to say that you can't strive for, for perfection but i had a feeling that we definitely didn't want to do this film on ones because i felt it was like just a little bit of waste of time and you can do beautiful animation on twos and i don't think any audience the audience are, are really in the first place really hard to understand what stop motion is in the first place you can show them around in the studio and tell them what you do. And then you, you, the first question to ask them, uh, like even they've seen the sets and the puppets and stuff, oh, you must be very good at drawing or whatever. They don't really, you know, people don't really get it. Anyway, so, so why is, you know, spend the time on it when, when people don't even know what they're looking at? And, and that's not important either because it it's not important that it's a stop motion film. It's important that it's a film. You touched on two things that I think are really interesting. You kind of built a pipeline that was that is like the dream pipeline. Like you took all of your experience and all of the things that you've seen that worked and didn't work and you built a place where that was like ideal, as ideal as possible. Let's, at least I tried, you know. Yeah, and I tried to take all the good things uh, and, and try to s suppress all the bad things away. Because like, of course it's, never going to be perfect because it's stop motion and if there's something that's not perfect it's stop motion because you, you you turn up every time you turn up at anything you go like oh i thought this would fit but it doesn't at all you know reset till like and then you think you can do it oh we could just we could just correct it in in a couple of hours but then you know after lunch you haven't still not started uh, and it just slides because so it's a complex kind of thing um, so it's hard to do perfect, but yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, this idea of per perfection. I, re I remember thinking, I heard it somewhere or I read it somewhere where Del Toro was talking about how the intention was never to make like this perfect film. He wanted people to see that this was a handmade yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah it, was very, it was very important to Guillermo as well that it did feel like um, it was handmade. You talk about you know working closely with Georgina, and you've clearly worked with her quite a bit over the years. Do you guys have a shorthand? Yeah, she goes like, "Ah, oh, you can't get that. It's ridiculous." Because <laughs> I'm always, you know, come every time I have an interaction with her, it's probably because I want something more out of the puppet than what's already there. So that's our shorthand. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the biggest challenge for stop motion animators that people will like just don't consider like even folks that might understand how it works 
don't really see that. Like they, they, until you're in it, you don't see that that would be a challenge. I think it's the biggest challenge is the time it takes to change things. I think so because it's the um, you always think, as I said, you always think it's going to be an easy fix or whatever. But then, you know, four hours later, we still haven't fixed it, and the prop actually broke, and now we have to build a new prop. You know, or, or something like that. You 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 think you go like, oh yeah, um, let's just uh, take those two things apart and. Uh, and but then in doing that you sort of ruin both of the things and then you do have to build a new thing um uh, yeah it's the it's the really the mud that you're walking in that's quite surprising you know you, it's like you're walking in mud to up to above your knees and it doesn't move anywhere that is the biggest challenge has technology helped like the advancements in technology have they helped make things easier or streamline the process i think so it's made it easier i think that the sort of the biggest thing that's that's really elevated the level of the animation is the ability to get really close to the puppet so in the old days you would climb around on sets because the sets would be big and if you have a character that's walking across the set you, there was no other option than to call on it because it was too expensive for doing some kind of digital help. You know, you you could saw the set in, in, in two pieces and pull it out and do plates and stuff, but it was to fairly reason very expensive to do that. But now you can. Now it doesn't really matter. You can just chop everything up and stick it to back together in the computer. So what you do now is you plan for the sets. You have done that all the time, but still there was a lot of a, there was sort of an um, expensive part of putting it back together and doing it again. That sort of have gone a little bit away with the technical like abilities of the computers. Um, so now you just, if you, if the puppet is walking across the field, you plan it out already from the set build to, for the set to be able to split uh, next to the path the, the puppet needs to walk. Uh, and then you just like do a plate in the beginning or a plate in the after, and you just split the set, and then the animator can very, come very close to the puppet and therefore are not suffering so much and therefore have more energy to put into the puppet. I think that's probably the sort of biggest change. And of course, the whole digital, like, I'm, you know, I've only shot one thing on film, and that was on, at the film school. Throughout my career, it's been shooting with still, um, still cameras, uh, which of course is a lot easier to handle and cheaper as well. Uh, so that's an important part as well, I think, so the digital still cameras. And also later on, so in the beginning, the digital still cameras, you couldn't see to the viewfinder, or you could, but that would be with a, a tiny camera stopped, like literally looking into the viewfinder, and it would be black and white because there was no color cameras that could do that. Or you would, you would take a, the little video camera and put on the side of the camera, but you wouldn't get the same kind of, because that little bit of, of switch of angle, you'd get a different kind of frame. Um, and, and it was poorly quality, especially on Corpse Bite, where everything was so low lit. So the video couldn't really. So it was like you were looking at a sort of really grainy black and white uh, image. 
uh, to animate too. And of course, your animated animation is going to suffer a little bit because you can't really see what you're doing. Um, then later, the digital cameras were able to, you could actually see through the, uh, what was the image was, which helped a lot as well. And the image quality of that had also gone up quite dramatically. So now you're really, you're nearly looking at the same high-res image that is going to be on screen. Um, you've talked in the past about how, you know, and you mentioned it here, how, you know, when you're an animator, you're also an actor because you're animating, you're you're bringing these puppets to life. Yeah. Like th this is your performance. Yeah. I'm curious if the preparation as a stop-motion animator is different than if you're working in, like, CG, because you have experience with both. Is it different to prepare? I, again, it depends on what kind of project I think it is, because, like, the CG work I worked on were sort of kind of short films and low-budget feature films where there was not that much time to do any sort of like live action reference and maybe you didn't really do that much of that in the at that time depends what it is if it's like really sort of rough tv that does that's like in preschool or whatever then that just have like this you know, just hands out and hands in and hands up and turn head and smile, then you probably don't need to prep that much for it because it's sort of, you know, it's simple enough. Um, but when you're doing something like a feature film, you probably nowadays, I would, I would think that nearly everybody working with that kind of stuff would go away and, and shoot a live action video of themselves. Um, prepping the action in that way it gives you it gives you two things it gives you a easy way to communicate with the directors so there's no you know you know all brains are difficult different so they would they would see different things from the brief but when you have this live action record you could either go like oh not not like that at all which saves you a step uh, or you could go like, oh, yeah, perfect, but just like make sure to get the hands higher in that particular point or whatever. So it's a very good tool for direction. And then uh, for the animation part, when you do the live action videos, um, you sort of get things that you wouldn't be able to make up in your brain because it's just too complex. Uh, so you would get little extra steps from you from what you're doing because you don't realize what you're doing is like if you put your if you if you get up of this chair which is not a new thing because like you know Disney have done it and you know we were taught that 25 years ago is that do your action before you kind of do it but we sort of never filmed it we sort of just noticed what where what our feet would do when you get off a chair and where you put your hands if you put your hands on knees if you put your hands on chair what you would do when, when you put the chair back in again to the table or whatever, you sort of put your hands in a particular way. Um, and, and those things, if you didn't go and really investigate those things, you wouldn't come up with them. You would be simple. And, and I think it suits, especially with, you know, sort of a full-length uh, uh, films, it suits the... Um, the storytelling that the characters are behaving a little bit more sort of com in a complex way. And for a project like the size of Pinocchio, where you have 
multiple Pinocchio puppets and you know many animators working on the same using the same character I know that continuity is a thing that you know we talk about in everything but in stop motion I would think that might be particularly difficult because everybody's a little bit different and you all do things a little bit differently so how do you maintain that level of continuity so the character always looks like Pinocchio you start like we very early on started doing tests with him and figured out how he would move and stuff and then you then as you're doing tests you go like oh yeah this is great and then you use that as a reference when new animators come on as well you go like have a look at this and this and this because these are you know our now bible material that we everybody should look at and then second is you quite often keep the same animators animator on the same sequence so sort of chunks of the films are made by the same people, which helps, you know, uh, in the continuity of things. Because you can never get away from, um, you know, uh, uh, the animator's sort of particular style and, and way of acting. You could sort of nearly always see the people in the puppet, uh, which is very funny. And so, but you, ca- you sort of keep on casting the same people who did well with that particular character for the same in other stuff as well mm-hmm. so if a particular animator did well with Pinocchio uh, we will f- find Pin- other Pinocchio stuff for them to do and all like Volpe uh, as well and um, yeah you sort of cast people to what they've been particularly good at um, in, pre- in previous work all projects have their own challenges for you what do you think what was the biggest challenge on Pinocchio? Other than working through the pandemic. Let's leave that one out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, the, I've, been, I've, I've got that question before. And I, I, don't, I don't think, like, if you sort of, uh, the biggest, the biggest sort of, the most sort of uh, daunting things when you're looking at it is looking at the entire thing. And if you look at the entire thing and think, oh, are we going to make this? I think you're just going to be, sitting in a corner, crying, rocking back and forth, because it kind of seems impossible. Um, so I think that the, the fact that we're doing all of the bits in tiny bits of, of, of little bits at a time is sort of helping you cope with the, with the massive task. The film in scope changed quite a lot over the, like what we set out to uh, build and what the end project is. So that was a very challenging to sort of keep on growing with the bigger and bigger scope of the thing. Um, that was that was challenging. Also, like the, the puppets sort of throughout the, the the particularly the Carlo character changed over time as well in his in his uh, wh- how much he t- space he took up in the film. Uh, it's quite challenging because the the puppet um, we built. Um, was sort of a different character to the character that he ended up being. He was sort of, in the beginning, he was a much sadder boy and, and had a very little role in the film. And then later on, he became quite a big part of it because he became the emotional arc for Geppetto. Yeah. Uh, and, and now he was this happy, like, the perfect little boy. Uh, so we, that was quite challenging to get him into that space. The, you know, the immense size of it all was like quite challenging. I, we had um, 42 animators working at the same time, which I think is the most animators I've ever 
work with at the same time. And it was the duration of the, because of the pandemic, the duration of the shoot was also quite challenging because um, people have sort of promised their time for the time, but then, you know, nobody could account for that. That time was suddenly like another year. So people had other engagement they had to go to. And so we had to find um, new people to step into their shoes. So I think over the uh, entire time of the production, we employed uh, 60 animators, um, you know, throughout the production and 40 in, in, in one time. The film was very long, so uh, and kept on being longer and longer. So we had to like build stages in in another building as well. Like there was sort of shadow machine is in two buildings, so there's HQ and then Building B, as we call them. So in it very sort of the last uh, year, I think so of the production, there was stages in HQ as well. Uh, so we shot on like you know sixty, you know. 65 stages or maybe 60 I don't know it was like a massive amount of stages so in the end me and Mark was just like running around you know instead of it's a a crazy pace because you you're starting so there's a cycle of things you know so they're not all starting at the same time so there's probably you there's probably 10 people that are starting on completely new things every day and then there's 10 people there's like looking at rehearsals and then there's 10 people they are shooting. There's probably 20 people they're shooting. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot of, there's a lot of things to cycle through editorial every day and stuff. So it's pretty, pretty wild. How do you, you know, when you're dealing with that much material and it's, everything is moving so fast. And at the same time, there's this slowness to stop motion because it takes so long to do things how do you stay grounded and motivated and like in the game the excitement of the whole thing you know like it's excitement of seeing a shot finished and then seeing the sequence or the little segment finished and then the sequence finished and then you're starting, they're starting to come together. That's, I think that's pretty wonderful. But just the coming into a unit and, and press play on the, on the computer and seeing the puppet go is just magical, I think so. And, and, the, and the artistry and the whole thing, like the camera light sets and behind every little curtain, there's another little universe that's created for just this. this I think that's quite magical. And it's extremely exciting. So the project is done. You go home. You, everybody raves about it. It's fabulous. But now it's in your past. You're looking for the next thing. How do you stay motivated and creative? And where do you find inspiration? It didn't quite end because we finished the film right off. Like we were dropping VFX shots in like literally a week before it was premiering in London. I don't know. Mr. X uh, did a fantastic job, but it must have worked there asses off because it was a it was a ton of ton of vfx work at the very last bit as well and then because of its success it's sort of netflix very early on started touring us around to like events and viewings for special invited people who had voting rights in in different places so it, it really carried on until like february we sort of ended we shot the last shot in august and then in February, it's like the Oscar time, and we take home the statue. And it didn't really end before that time. So, so that sort of was like going on. First time I've ever been that close to 
the, the that part of it absolutely yeah is, is a wild a wild ride i i don't know i i'm not as a, as we started a conversation i've not really had a specific specific goal ever it's just i've looked around me and and found things that looked exciting and just went over and knocked on the door in in the in the most exciting place i could see I need very little motivation. I'm, I'm probably quite excited about just sort of being already. So it doesn't. Uh, I'm I'm excited for the hopefully the next great thing, you know, which I'm not sure what is. Guillermo is talking about wanting to do make a, a another stop motion film with Shadow Machine, uh, which is which is um, based on the book uh, called Barrett Giant. It's, it's, it's probably going to be for grown-ups only, so that's going to be another. That's going to be another exciting kind of different kind of way that I think might be exciting to do. Um, there's another little like uh, feature film, um, sort of in 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 the in the mix somewhere out there. Otherwise, I'm doing right now. I'm doing a TV show which is called In the Know. It's created by Zach Woods and Brandon Gardner and with Mike Judge, uh, the Beavers and Butthead guy, as a sort of a mystical overlord in the background. Zach Woods, you probably know from American Office, which is a six-episode, 20 minutes comedy show set in an NPR radio studio. And it's really funny. So we've, we are sort of finishing that up in the next like four weeks or something like that, which has been a mad rush as well because um, we shot more footage for that than we shot for Pinocchio in three years. And we, I, I think we've only shot for like half a year or whatever. Wow. So, so uh, and But it looks stunning because um, all the amazing animators who both like the people who worked on Wilden and Wild, yeah. Henry Selick film in, that was made in Portland as well, and then the people from Pinocchio, is now doing TV, oh, wow. which is just amazing, you know. Uh, and also, we've been like, there's keep on new new people keep on popping up, and very talented people, young young people are popping up as well and helping out. It's, it's just wonderful. So the the quality of the animation in in those uh, six times twenty minutes is pretty high. Um, so that makes it even more fun, you yeah. know. You know, you talked about that little sticky note that you had for years with the mm. phone number. Is is there still like maybe not a physical f sticky note, but is there still maybe a mental sticky note about big puppets? Is that still? I think so. I don't know if I can manage to like because you know it, it's another career. I'm not like just thinking that I can walk in there and and start anim like pu be puppeteering. So I'm not that arrogant. But you know, so it, it would take some time. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. You know, I don't know. You've done a lot in your career uh, as an animator and you've seen a lot of stuff. What would you say for folks that are interested in getting into animation and specifically stop motion? What would be your, if you could tell them one thing, what would that be? It's, it's sort of changed a lot since I began. Because um, like when I, when I was looking for stuff, to do and stuff there was not even, there was no internet so it was like you know went I went to the library and got a a, a uh, Jim Henson book on how to make puppets but that was really the extent you know you couldn't really it was really difficult to figure out what to do and which is very different different 
uh, nowadays and there's a lot more platforms. So I would think that start animating, uh, make an Instagram page or YouTube or whatever you want to do and put your stuff out there because people are looking and just animate, animate, animate. Like go, de depending on what kind of thing you want to do, like look at what other people have done um, and try to do similar stuff, you know? Um, also, like pub armatures and puppets are much easier to get your hands on. They cost a little bit of money, but you can get your hands on them, which you, you I wouldn't, I was not able to at all, because um, yeah, people are making them and and selling them online. Yeah, so just get animating and make sure to check in with what what the studios are doing or the places you want to work are doing, and then try to do something similar to that. Get some TV into your hands as well, I think. So I think don't think that you have to go straight to Leica to make it in the world of stop motion because um, there's a lot of people who want to do that. So the competition is pretty high. But I think you can get a lot of, of good things out of, on working on some t television like TV series and stuff because the turnaround is quicker. So you get a lot of frames in your hands, which I think is important. You get to you, you start shot and and finish a shot many times which i think is a a thing you need to have in your muscle so you don't freak out every time you have to start a shot and finish a shot so, so if you've done that many times it sort of it lies deep into you in in your system and that was our conversation with brian leaf hansen you can find out more about brian's upcoming projects at shadowmachine.com the Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.